Thank you for listening to this teaching from Kingdom Discipleship. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ was the greatest miscarriage of justice in the history of the world. Jesus was perfect, the only sinless human being, and yet he was tortured and crucified as a vile criminal. Jesus underwent all this out of his incredible love for you and I, that we may be forgiven of our sins, have a relationship with our God and Father, and ultimately go to heaven when we die. Let's open our Bible now to John chapter 19 and read the overwhelming account of the crucifixion of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to another teaching. It's a Sunday afternoon here in Texas and uh, hopefully y'all are just loving on Jesus, spending time with Jesus. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Um, I'll tell you, preparing for these verses today, uh, John 19, we're going to do verses 16 through 27, Lord willing. It's just, it's, it's hard. I mean, these are going to be the, these are verses on the crucifixion of Jesus. And the last teaching was hard because it just talked about how the, the soldiers flogged Jesus and mocked Jesus. We talked about just the, just the hard heartedness, just the, just the darkness in the hearts of, uh, of people and how, you know, save the grace and mercy of our heavenly father. You know, we too are just capable of such, such darkness. Have mercy on us, Lord Jesus. Um, yeah. So, uh, you know, just in studying these verses and preparing for this and meditating on this and just seeing the different things that the scholars wrote you know, about really what crucifixion is and, uh, and just the torture that it really is. And, um, you know, it's just, it's just hard to, to read, but to understand that Jesus willingly went through all this in our place and on our behalf so that we could be redeemed, so that we could be bought back, right? We were slaves to sin, so to speak. The Bible says we're slaves to sin. Right. We were slaves to sin, Romans six. But, you know, now we we're, we're called to be slaves to righteousness. Right. Um, meaning we're called to live a righteous life in Jesus Christ. And that simply means that, that, you know, in everything we do, we ought to take the time to think about what's right in any given situation based on what the Bible says. We need to think about what's right so we can do what's right simply because it's right. Right, Lauren? Um, we need to have a righteous lifestyle. Now, we cannot have a righteous lifestyle until we know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. The Bible teaches there are three kinds of righteousness. I've mentioned this before. Um, there's what's called self-righteousness. Self-righteousness is when, when someone believes that somehow by their own righteous life or by their own good works, they can somehow go to heaven or help themselves go to heaven. That's called a self-righteousness. Um, the scripture is clear that it's only by, by genuinely humbling ourselves before Jesus, going before Jesus in genuine humility, knowing that we are utterly desperate, hopeless, and helpless. And only in Christ, only in genuinely receiving Christ, can we be forgiven of our sins, 
come into relationship with the triune God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, and ultimately go to heaven when we die. There's nothing we can do in ourselves. There's nothing we can do to even help ourselves. Any good that we do by the common grace of God does not help take away our bad. You know, we've given the examples before, right? If we blow through a red light and the policeman pulls us over, we can't say, but officer, I mean, look how good I did in not running the last 200 red lights. It wouldn't matter. All the good we did in obeying the law and stopping at those 200 lights would not take away the fact that we ran through this red light and he would give us a ticket and we'd have to pay our debt to society for the wrong we did. I've said before, in the state of Texas, if we murder someone, right, all the good we do or have ever done would not take away that murder. We couldn't stand before the judge and say, judge, man, listen, we're, we're good people. I'm a pastor. You know, I teach the Bible. None of that would matter. I'd either spend life in prison or be executed because good doesn't take away bad, right? Um, and I'm talking about regarding our salvation here, right? So, you know, when we, when we approach God, we have a sin problem. The Bible says that all humanity is sinful. Romans 3.23 says that every human being is sinful and falls short of God's standard in every manner and in every way. Right now, of course, there are consequences for our sin and the Lord is merciful on us. Right. But when it comes to salvation, every human being needs Jesus to redeem them, to buy them back from the slavery of sin. Right. We need redemption in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that happens by trusting and receiving Jesus Christ as your only Lord and Savior. Romans 1, uh, I'm sorry, John 1, 12 says that to all who received him, Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Have you received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today? Are you genuinely and completely trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins and the salvation of your soul? Which is to say, have you abandoned any and all hope in anything else in coming to know God and hoping to go to heaven, abandoning all hope in yourself and any good life that you've lived and just throwing yourself at the foot of the cross, humbling yourself before Jesus and just crying out to him. Romans 10, 13 says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. It's not our words that save us, right? But we use our words to communicate our heart to God. Have you humbled yourself before Jesus? Jesus is God, right? We have a triune God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three separate beings, all God. And in Jesus Christ, we have relationship with all of them. Without Jesus, we cannot know any of them in any manner or in any way. In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are his words. No one comes to the Father except through me. All 8 billion people in the world today need Jesus. So have you humbled yourself and received Jesus Christ? If you're not certain, you can just simply go before Jesus now with a humble heart, a contrite heart, and just confess to him, Lord Jesus I know I'm a sinful person. I know I've done wrong, Lord. Lord, I know 
that I am hopeless and helpless and desperate, but I believe you are the son of God, Lord Jesus. I believe you came into this world and lived a perfect life, even for me, and died a torturous, perfect death for me in my place and on my behalf, Lord. And Lord Jesus, I believe you are alive and risen today. And therefore, Lord Jesus, I ask you now to come into my heart and to be the Lord of my life and to save me from my sin and to bring me to heaven when I die. Lord Jesus, I place all my faith and trust and hope and confidence in you alone to save me and to be my everlasting Lord and God. That's how you become a Christian. Now listen, I want to say again, it's not just puppeting those words, right? Saying words, right, is, is not what's important. It's the genuineness, the sincerity of your heart, right? Romans 10, 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, but it's, it's calling on him, knowing your need of him, knowing that without him, only hell awaits. You're not sure that you've given your life to Jesus again. Back up the tape. Use the words that, that I used. But again, it's the genuineness, the authenticity, the sincerity of your heart that matters. And if you'll cry out to him and humble yourself before him and humbly ask him to be the Lord of your life, you will be saved. and You will become a Christian and your sin will be paid for by Jesus at the cross of Christ. That's why he went through all this horrible, unspeakable suffering that, that uh, we spoke about last time and we're going to continue this time. So, Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the Bible. We thank you for the scriptures, Father. But, Father, above all and beyond all, we thank you for Jesus, our only Lord and Savior and Master and King. Lord Jesus, we thank you for becoming a human man for us. Lord, we thank you for living your life perfectly for us. We thank you for dying this torturous and horrible death for us. We thank you, Lord, and worship you. We thank you that you are alive and risen today, and we worship you, our risen Savior. Holy Spirit, we ask you to lead us and guide us now as we open the scriptures. Give us eyes that see Jesus and ears that hear in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. So I was, I was speaking about the three types of righteousness. I already talked about the first kind of righteousness the Bible talks about, which is a self-righteousness where you're trying to be made right in yourself and stand before God based on your own righteousness, your own goodness, your own good works. The scripture is clear that it will never work. Okay. Um, the second type of righteousness is called imputed righteousness. And what that is, is when you give your life to Christ, when you genuinely trust in Christ, as we as we just went through, right? Um, when you when you when you genuinely call on Jesus and ask Him to come into your heart and be the Lord of your life, all of your sin, past, present, and future, is credited to Jesus at the cross, and the perfect righteous life that He lived when He walked the earth is credited to you. Try to grasp that, right? That exchange is the heart of the Christian gospel, right, Nathan? All of our sin, past, present, and future, credited to Jesus at the cross. He takes it into himself at the cross. And the perfect righteous life that he lived when he walked the earth is credited to us. And so when God the Father sees us, he sees us as righteous 
as Christ. It's incredible. I believe it's what, 2 Corinthians 5.21? It says that, that God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of Christ. It's, it's incredible. I mean, it's, uh, I think I said that right, right? I'm going to look that up real quick. 2 Corinthians 5, chapter, chapter 5, I think it's verse 21. Verse 21, God made him who had no sin, Jesus, to be sin for us, so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. It's incredible. So the second kind of righteousness is imputed righteousness. And again, that's the righteousness of Christ, the righteous life that Jesus lived, credited to us in exchange for all the sin and disobedience and wickedness we've ever done in word, thought, and deed, credited to Jesus at the cross, right? It's kind of incredible. It's a nice trade, right? It's an incredible swap, so to speak, right? Now, the third kind of righteousness is called lifestyle righteousness. And once you've received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you actually have the imputed righteousness of Christ, the scripture exhorts us, implores us, demands that we labor to live a righteous life. This has nothing to do with our salvation. We, live, we, we labor to live a righteous life, not to save us, not to help save us, but out of our love for Jesus Christ, out of our reverence for him, we want to be like him. So three types of righteousness the Bible teaches. Self-righteousness, imputed righteousness, and lifestyle righteousness, okay? Lifestyle righteousness doesn't help save you at all. It's the response, it's the legitimate response to receiving the imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ that we receive by faith, right? Makes sense? All right. John 19, 16 to 27. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what the soldiers did. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, 
and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Um, again, we had uh, in the last teaching, we had discussed just the Jesus before Pilate, how, uh, you know, how Pilate had had him flogged and the beating was so bad. You remember we, we talked about, you know, Isaiah 52, 14 that said he was he was marred and disfigured beyond human likeness. He was beaten so bad he wasn't even wasn't even recognizable as a human man in some ways. It's uh, it's incomprehensible, the beating that was given to Jesus. Some scholars have said that, you know, if Jesus was not a, a sinless man, he is the only sinless human being to ever live. My brother, Jason Ross, big brother, wrote a book called The Sinless Man. It's a good book. I recommend it. But he's the only sinless human being to ever live, never sinned, never did anything wrong, never had a wrong thought, never spoke a wrong word, never did a wrong action or deed. And because of that, you know, some scholars postulate that with no sin in him, you know, he would have been, his body would have been far superior to a normal human being. And if not for that, if not for the fact that he did not have sin living in him and deteriorating him and, and all the problems and the sickness and disease and everything that that caused, that he would have been killed long ago. But being a sinless man, not being polluted with sin, he was able to bear the beating and still go to the cross, bear that, that torture. All right. Um, verse 16 Finally, Pilate handed, handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Verse 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Now it's interesting in the other three gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, um, it says very clear, I believe it's Matthew 27, Mark 15, and Luke 23. Um, it says that the soldiers forced a man named Simon of Cyrene to carry the cross of Jesus. Now, when it says that carrying his own cross, it wasn't the entire cross, right? Scholars tell us that, that the, the upright beam of the cross, right, that would have already been in the ground and, you know, uh, the victim... Jesus would have had to just carry the, the cross beam, right? The part that went across, so to speak. It's called the uh, uh, portobellum or protobellum. I forget the word. I saw it when I was studying. Um, um, but it just means the piece that goes, you know, across. The, the long beam, again, would have been stuck into the ground already. But even that piece would have been very, very heavy. And, you know, presumably Jesus being so so overwhelmed, so beaten, he was... He was having a tough time carrying that beam. And so in, in Matthew 27 and Mark 15 and in Luke um, 23, and I'll just, I'll just read one of them. I'll read Luke here. 
Um, all right. Luke 23, 26. As they led him away, they seized Simon from Cyrene, who was on his way in from the country, and put the cross on him and made him carry it behind Jesus. Okay. Um, now, in the other two Gospels, it says he's the father of two sons, someone in Rufus, right? Um, Rufus and Alexander, I believe it says. See, now, now, now I'm going to have to go back and read them all. Okay. All right. So Mark 15. Mark 15, 21. A certain man from Cyrene, Simon, the father of Alexander and Rufus, was passing by on his way in from the country, and they forced him to carry the cross. All right, so now that was Mark 15, verse 21. And now let's find Matthew 27. And verse... Verse 32, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. Okay, so John does not include that in his gospel, but in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you know, we see we have this, this information. And again, it's undoubtedly because, you know, Jesus was, was unable to do it. It was too much for him, right? Um and again, we can postulate, some have postulated that, you know, uh, uh, Simon, you know, as he carried Jesus's cross, right, and saw Jesus's suffering, that possibly that he would have come to receive Jesus as his, as his Savior. He would have come to genuinely believe in Jesus and trust in him um, as his Lord and Savior, right? We certainly hope that's the case. Um, verse 18. Here they crucified him. It says in 17, carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Here they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. So um, in Matthew, I believe it is, it's the, um, the, the two thieves are, are railing against him. And then in Luke, one of the thieves repents, right? And that, that in itself is a very powerful story. Um, golly, we're jumping around today. Sorry. Um, but I'm going to go back to Matthew here. In chapter 27. Um, it says in, in Matthew um, 27, two robbers were crucified with him one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, you are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the son of God. 41, in the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the laws and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. 
Verse 44, in the same way, the robbers, plural, who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So again, we just see this merciless situation. Jesus loves these people so much. I'm telling you, if it was me, I'd have said, you know what? You want me to come down from the cross? I'll come down from the cross. If Jesus took himself down from the cross, you and I would be in hell for all eternity. And so would they. But Jesus loves them enough to, to just, to not, it's so hard. How can you be God, God the Son, the Son of God, and he's giving his life for these people and yet, they're insulting him, they're mocking him, and yet he continues to love them so much. And by extension, us, because this is really us, right? We too have mocked Jesus in such horrible ways, right? But he continues to go through with all this out of his incredible love to, to redeem us. But what I want to point out here is, again, that both robbers are mocking him now at the beginning of his crucifixion, right? John doesn't say this, but we find it again in, in Matthew 27, verse 44. Now, when you turn to Luke, we're going to find that, um, that one of the robbers repents, right? Verse 39, Luke 23, 39. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him, at Jesus. Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Verse 40, but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence. We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And look at this again, Luke 23, 43, Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. So clearly one of the thieves, one of the robbers who was heretofore insulting him comes to his senses, rebukes the other thief and asks for mercy. And says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. You know, we're going to see this here, the same principle down at the end of these verses we're discussing today. But, you know, I might have said to the man hanging on the cross, May, I might have said to the thief, you know what, bruh, I kind of got a lot going on right now. Kind of doing the dying of the sin of the world thing here. You know, I've been tortured a hundred times worse than you. Can you, can you kind of just give me my space? But Jesus, tortured in a, in a way that's inconceivable, crucified, nails, spikes driven through his, his wrists and his feet, right? In utter torture, gives this here to four thief who was just this thief who was here to four just just insulting him 
right? He gives him his attention and, and, and shares the most comforting words possible. He shares words that are just inconceivable. He grants the thief salvation because of the thief's faith that Jesus can do it. Jesus, he said, remember me when you come into my kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and said, today you will be with me in paradise. And imagine that comfort, that comfort the thief received there just moments before, you know, the thief is there crucified as well. We'll be dying in we don't know how long. Could be minutes, could be a couple hours, few hours, right? Again, Jesus taking his mind off himself. You know, it's so hard when we're in, we're in trying and difficult circumstances to take our mind off ourselves and to really put it on, on others, right? And we'll see this principle again. Let's go to it now in verse uh, 25. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. So just as a, a note, where are all the other disciples? Okay. It's going to say John um, is standing there too. John, in just his tremendous humility, doesn't mention himself, right? Um, he just calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, you know, we'll talk about that too. Um, it says, nearby the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother there, Mary, and the disciple whom he loved, and again, this is the name John gave himself, and that's the name you ought to give yourself. You ought to stop using your own name, right, Jim, and just start calling yourself the disciple whom Jesus loved, right? Do you know yourself? as the disciple whom Jesus loved. Because all of this that Jesus did, Papa, he did for you. All of this he did, Mama, he did for you. Scott, do you call yourself? I want you to inter introduce yourself at meetings from now on, Scott, and say, how you doing? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Corinne, from now on, when a patient comes in, I want you to say, good morning. How are you? I'm the disciple whom Jesus loved. Tried to use her voice there a little bit. Um, my my cousin Corinne is like a, you know, what is that called? A nurse practitioner? She's almost a doctor, right? Do you know, do you know yourself as the disciple whom Jesus loved? But but look at the courage, okay? You, you don't see the other ten disciples there. Okay, but you see these four women courageously standing there in earshot of Jesus, his mother, right? The uh, the pain of his mother that she's consistently had to endure, the love of, of Mary here is, uh, you know, and, and, and the pain in her heart. And it, and it was predicted, right? We, uh, you know, if you... If you go back, you know, to Luke, and it talks about when, you know, when he was circumcised, right? Um, in Luke 2, 
verse 25, it says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. This is eight days after Jesus' birth. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother. Now remember, this is, this is eight days after Jesus' birth. And imagine Mary thinking about this now, 33 and a half years later, looking at her firstborn son, unrecognizable. It's, there's a sadness that's incomprehensible. And, and, and think about her remembering back what Simeon told her 33 and a half years earlier. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, this child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. That's Luke 2.35. Simeon tells Mary, a sword will pierce your own soul too. And there is no question that right now, Mary's soul is pierced, stabbed, tortured, seeing her firstborn son, perfect in love, God hanging on the cross. But, and again, just this incredible show, Uncle Dennis, of concern of Jesus. Again, he's got a lot going on. But look at the concern he shows for his mother. He's still taking care of his mom. <laughs> He's still taking care of his mom. Hanging on the cross. Humiliated. Beaten. Naked. When Jesus saw his mother there, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And again, dear woman was not an insult. It would have been like saying ma'am or lady in a very loving way in that culture. Dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple, and that's John. So apparently John was standing there as well, right? And to the disciple, here is your mother. In verse 27, it says, from that time on, this disciple took her into his house. It's interesting. Jesus doesn't give specific instructions to John. But apparently John knows, and Jesus knows John as a disciple. Jesus shouldn't have to spell everything out to us, Stephen, little by little by little by little by little. There are many things the Bible doesn't tell us to do. That is Christians, as those who walk with Christ, who receive Christ, who love Jesus, that we should intuitively know to do and desire to do and, and, and walk out in our life. Again, all Jesus said, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. 
and to his disciple, to the disciple, John, here is your mother. From that time on, this disciple took her into his home. And again, of course, Jesus knew that this would happen. And it's very, very interesting here because Jesus still has his brothers and sisters alive. So again, Mary still has other children whom she would normally go live with. But Jesus here charges John that I want you to take care of my mother now like she's your mother. As a matter of fact, this is your mother, Mary, this is your son. And so now Mary is going to go and live with John instead of her natural children, right? Now, why would that be? Again, uh, some scholars postulate, and it's, it's probable that, again, at this time, his natural brothers and sisters still don't believe in him, right? They still don't believe he's, he's God. They don't believe he's the Messiah, the Son of God, right? And so Jesus wants to entrust his mother with a faithful disciple, right? And we've, we've made clear before that, that it's our spiritual family that's our closest family. Now, hopefully our natural family is also our spiritual family, right? That's the goal. But ultimately, it's your spiritual family and only your spiritual family that you'll spend eternity with, right? Because it's not until our natural family, right? Mothers, fathers, grandparents, aunts, uncles, right? Cousins. It's not until they come to receive Jesus Christ genuinely and truthfully. It's not until then that they are your spiritual family. And so again, um, undoubtedly, Jesus is prioritizing that, that Mary and John as, as spiritual mother and son, right? Has a greater weight than, uh, than the natural relationship. And, and so it ought to be in our life. Those relationships that we're closest with are other people that are walking with Jesus, right? And again, hopefully our mothers, fathers, families, right? It should be our desire for our entire family to walk with Jesus. It's my desire for my entire family to walk intimately with Jesus. Again, mother, father, grandmother, grandfather, aunts, uncles, cousins, right? Second cousins. Um, they're not, but it's my heart and it ought to be your heart that your entire family come to genuinely know Jesus Christ as their Lord and savior, receive him and trust in him. I consistently pray for my family, all of them. And, uh, and, and you ought to as well. Right? So again, we see again, this incredible love of Jesus while, while hanging on the cross and other torture still taking care of his mother, taking his mind off himself. And that's an example to us that, that we all just need to follow, right? And it's, and it's hard because when we're going through tough times, it's hard to be thoughtful to others, right? And again, speaking about, again, you see these women here. Near the cross of Jesus stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene, right? We see the devotion of these four women of God that loved Christ. John is there, but where are the other 10, 10, uh, 10 apostles, 10 disciples, right? They're not there out of fear. So uh, again, um, four to five people mentioned here are women. Um, clearly not concerned about what the Romans are thinking or what the Jews are thinking. 
but there in support of Jesus because they had experienced the love of Christ in such a deep and intimate way. And we want to we want to follow these women in this. Right. It's an example to us that they love Jesus so much that they will stand with him. As does John. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Help us, Lord Jesus. Verse 19, Pilate had a notice prepared and fastened to the cross. It read, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this sign, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, which means it was outside the city, but it was near the city. And the sign was written in Aramaic, Latin, and Greek. So when you were crucified, the Romans wanted, you know, uh, everyone to know the charge, okay? So the charge would have been put above your head. And here's the charge, okay? They fastened, uh, the notice fastened would read the charge. And here's the charge against him, okay? He hasn't done anything wrong in any way. But here's the charge. Jesus of Nazareth, Nazareth the king of the Jews. And interesting, interestingly enough, he has never done anything wrong, right, Jason? But he is the king of the Jews. Matter of fact, he's the king of everything, right? Jesus is God. You remember after his resurrection in Matthew 28, 18 to 20, Jesus said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus is the boss of everything. So the charge against him, there's no criminal charge against him. And yet he's been utterly tortured and crucified in tremendous love for you and for me, right? The charge is the king of the Jews, right? That's his crime. It's true. He is indeed the king of the Jews, right? Verse 21, this is interesting. The chief priests of the Jews protested to Pilate. Do not write the king of the Jews, but this man claimed to be king of the Jews. They were concerned, undoubtedly, that it was a mockery that when you say he's the king of the Jews... Pilate, you're showing that you could actually crucify the king of the Jews, so don't say that. Does that make sense? Meaning, if he's the king of the Jews, it's, uh, it's kind of like showing the world that you don't mess with Rome. Because here's the king of the Jews, and this is what we did to the king of the Jews, is we humiliated the king of the Jews. Verse 22, Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. I'm not changing it. This is what's saying. Um, the Jews, are, these Jewish leaders have been a thorn in his side. He, he wanted to release Jesus. They kept manipulating him. And they said, you know, anyone who, you know, you know, who releases him is no friend of Caesar because Jesus claimed to be a king. Um, and Jesus did claim to be a king. Right. And he is. But he wasn't a king that was threatening the, the Roman government. So again, the Jews have manipulated everything and Pilate out of spite says, what I have written, I have written. The charge is the charge and I'm not changing it. And again, it's interesting um, because certainly they didn't know it at the time, but he is in reality, not only the king of the Jews, but the king of the universe, right? Verse 23, when the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them, with the undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless, woven in one piece from top to bottom. Let's not tear it, they said to one another. Let's decide by lot who will get it. This happened that the scripture might be fulfilled, which said, 
They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. So this is what they did. Um, that is in, uh, that's Psalm twenty-two, eighteen. So in Psalm twenty-two, eighteen is the quote, they divided my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. And so it was prophesied back in the Psalms, whatever that was, 600 years earlier, that this would happen. And so this prophecy, you know, comes to pass that was said in the Old Testament. They divided my garments among them and cast lots for my, my clothing. There's clearly four soldiers here. Um, it says they divided his clothes, one for each of them with the um, undergarment remaining. This garment was seamless. Traditionally... Um, Prisoners were, were crucified naked so as to provide the utmost humiliation. Now, now, you know, some scholars say that, you know, that the Jews would have protested a naked, you know, um, crucifixion for a Jew. And so some say there's a possibility he might have had an undergarment on. But most historians, from what I've read, do believe that Jesus was crucified naked. That was how crucifixion happened. And again, it was meant to be uh, an obvious example to all those who would think twice about crossing Rome, right? So again, Jesus hanging there, utterly humiliated, naked. And all of this he does out of incredible love for humanity so that you and I could be forgiven of our sins so that we could come into relationship with him, with God, the father, with him, God, the son, Jesus, and with God, the Holy spirit. So we could walk this life growing in relationship with them. So we could escape eternal hell and ultimately go to heaven when we die. It's incredible. You know, um, Again, when you, when you think about this, when you think about the soldiers, four soldiers, right? Taking his clothes, dividing them into four shares, one for each of them. One, two, obviously there's four soldiers. Um, you know, uh, I only pray and hope, Lord, that these soldiers came to know you, right? We, they didn't know what they were doing. Obviously, they just thought he was another criminal, but he's not. And, uh, we all need to come to know who we're really dealing with with Jesus. Because as I've said before, all of us are as guilty as these soldiers. We're all equally sinful at the foot of the cross. We all need a savior. We all deserve eternal hell. And that's where we're headed, Esther, without Jesus. Give your life to Jesus if you haven't done so already. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your grace. We thank you that we have our Bible. Father, as always, we just thank you more than anything else, above all, for Jesus. We thank you for Jesus, our King, our Savior, our Master, our God. Lord Jesus, we worship you and we praise you today. We thank you for undergoing this humiliation and this suffering, Lord. For me, for us, Lord. Lord, we ask you to forgive us. Forgive me, Lord, when I still live such a selfish, self-centered life. 
Help us to live for you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love for you, to give for you, and to forgive for you. Help us, Lord Jesus. Holy Spirit, we ask you to seal the message to our hearts now. Give us eyes that see Jesus and ears that hear him. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.